For many people who don't live and breathe politics, it might seem like Kate Forbes suddenly burst onto the scene. But of course, she was elected in Skye, Lochaber and Badenoch in 2016. She took a big leap into government in 2020 as Finance Secretary, then Parenthood last year, and now straight into the race for the top job, cutting short maternity leave a bit as she attempts to take over from Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister. In general political terms, it's been a rapid rise, so I caught up with her in our series of interviews with SNP candidates for the job of First Minister, which will be determined at the end of March. We raked over her faith, the first hundred days of her government, relations with cabinet colleagues, including Nicola Sturgeon, and her pitch for independence. I started by asking her what motivated her to go for the top job. What motivates me? Well, the weekend after Nicola Sturgeon resigned, I was extremely torn as to whether to break my maternity short because I've absolutely loved being at home, as most new mothers do, with my little baby. But actually, that was itself the motivation to go for it, Mm -hmm. because there's nothing like parenthood to refocus your mind on how we need to make Scotland a better place to live and work, a better place for our young people to grow up in. If you wanted one defining mission that motivates me politically, it's the fact that too many kids are in poverty in Scotland. One in four kids are in poverty in a country that is wealthy with energy, with food supplies, and yet kids are poor. And that's what motivated me to get into politics. I suppose that's what motivates me on the constitution, on independence. And looking at my little six-month-old baby, it's what motivates me to think that everybody should have the same equal equal rights as she does. Well, you, you, you mentioned your, your your family as a sort of guiding principle there, and much has been made of, of the wider guiding principles, the, an ideology rooted in a community with a church background, um, which has been much discussed. Have you been surprised by some of the reaction, uh, maybe beyond your constituency too, uh, about your, your uh, more personal motivations and, and the ideology that underpins some of it? I have been stunned by the scale of it. I was fully expecting it because I've obviously stood for election locally and it's been a talking point locally. But prior to me launching my campaign, before I'd even said a word, in fact, I hadn't said a word politically for about seven months, Twitter and the press were full of discussion about my faith prior to me even launching. So I knew that there would be questions and I was prepared for those questions. I suppose I was quite taken aback, and I think a lot of people were taken aback by the scale of the response, because it's not the first time that a politician with faith has ever stood for high office. And I was already in one of the most senior roles in government as finance secretary, and I don't think anybody could fault the fact that I made financial decisions without a single jot of prejudice. Well, you make that point, and your colleagues did seem perfectly happy to have you alongside them in government. So uh, it was only really afterwards that um, more of the, some more critical comments came saying, so what, what changed? I don't fully understand it, to be honest, at this stage. I think that people are, right now in Scotland, often fearful of the backlash that they themselves will receive. And perhaps it's indicative of 
the nature of public discourse in Scotland. I think this election contest needs to be full of honesty and candour, both about the challenges that we face in Scotland, but the opportunities. And perhaps that early backlash was indicative of the nature of our public discourse, where people are quite fearful of saying things which are perhaps not overly popular or being associated with positions that are not overly popular. Well, having lived through that initial, as you say, sort of stunned reaction to it, uh, are, are you, do you feel happy talking about it? Do you, do you feel that you have to go on the defence or, or do you think that people are starting to maybe understand more where you come from on a personal level? Well, I do think I'm happy to talk about it, but I do think that I have also learned the importance of not just giving, as it were, direct answers to direct questions, but trying to remind people that ultimately what motivates me is compassion and humanity. And that applies to all minority groups in Scotland. And I would be horrified at the thought that Scotland would not be a safe and secure place for all minorities, including LGBT people. I think Scotland has come a long way in that regard. And we still need to make greater progress for ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, uh, and indeed, perhaps people of faith are themselves a minority as well. So that, for me, is the mark of, of true progress. So I'm happy to speak about it. But I think I'm also very keen that we get into the, the detail of candidates' visions for Scotland and ultimately how they're going to deliver, because it's all very well having the right policies. But unless we deliver those policies in a way that works for people, we're going to still keep lamenting the fact that one in four children are in poverty without actually doing anything about it. Well, let's let's move on to policy. and We'll start where we're leaving off a little bit there with equality. So... It, obviously a lot has been made about how you might have voted or would vote in future on particular issues on equality is it a case of this far and no further or would you adopt a vote of conscience approach to certain contentious issues where you might not agree how would that work in a, in a Kate Forbes government well in a Kate Forbes government there would be a solemn and honest pledge from the outset that I would uphold every legal and protection that's in place for every Scot whether they are gay or straight, male, female or trans. That would be the starting position. And then I think we need to go further in ensuring that Scotland is that safe and secure place for all minorities. And that means, for example, looking at hate crime figures. Hate crime figures are on the rise. We need to empower not just the police, but also other public bodies to ensure that it, we are all working to make Scotland a safe and secure place. And that applies to LGBT minorities. It also applies to the Catholic community, um, as well as those of other faiths. And then I think, thirdly, there is still more progress that can be made on particular policies, which are already in the SNP manifesto. And bear in mind that as an SNP leader, it's SNP members that make policy. I am accountable to the public, but I'm also accountable to my party. And the party is a democratic organisation where policy is made by the grassroots. Well, there are, of course, other moral mazes to navigate in, in a position of government as First Minister. 
um, thinking of one in particular, cross-party MSPs want to look again at the, the right to assisted dying. That is a tough one. It's it's come and gone at Parliament and it's failed each time. But um, the, the group behind it really think that they've got a chance of trying to win a majority of support now. Is that something that you would allow to progress through Parliament? It's something that I think should be a conscience vote. It's been a conscience vote the last two times it's been in Parliament. And I think on matters of life and death, they should be conscience votes. I have looked very carefully at both the previous proposals in terms of legislation, but also at how assisted dying legislation works in other parts of the world. The Netherlands, Oregon are two of the, the foremost examples. And I personally remain very sceptical that there can ever be sufficient safeguards in place when it comes to an assisted dying uh, law. And I say that as somebody who has a very uh, vulnerable family member who would struggle to make decisions themselves. And I would be fearful that with the start of any legislation, it continues to expand as it has in other parts of the world and anybody, any vulnerable individual, including those that are terminal, might feel under pressure. So what I'd be looking at in this legislation is what safeguards are in place for vulnerable people. Uh, obviously, this is about terminally ill people, but it's making sure that there are safeguards in place. It would be a conscience vote, and I'm still to be persuaded. Okay. Well, um, you, you talked about one of your, your central focuses being poverty and particularly getting children out of poverty. So let's say you're in government. It's the first 100 days. Let's indulge the um, the old cliche about every administration's first sort of staging point. What, what would you hope to achieve? The quick wins, the, the big changes? Of, you're, on the, you're on the front foot. What happens in that first 100 days of Kate Forbes as first minister? So there are three main missions in that first 100 days because underpinning the work to eradicate poverty and the work to reinvest in our public services is the requirement to ensure our economy is prospering and businesses and our key industries, they've weathered the storm of Brexit, of COVID, of cost of living. And my approach would be, first of all, to look at how we give that space to them. So there have been a number of suggestions and initiatives that are piling more regulatory burdens on them that are not necessary at this point in time. And I think the first thing would be to pause those so that businesses can get through the next few months and indeed the next few years. The second thing is looking at our work to eradicate poverty. And that is being really intentional. So we've got the Scottish Child Payment, which was part of uh, the budgets that I took through Parliament. But we also know that well-paid, secure work is one of the key routes out of poverty. And whilst we've got a number of initiatives to reach those who are currently inactive according to uh, labour market terminology, I think we need to be really far more intentional about supporting people into work, particularly those who are uh, not in work right now, but want to be in work. The third thing is about our public services. Let's take our NHS. And most of the polling shows that NHS tops the issues of concern that people have right now. Waiting times are too long. Delayed discharge is too high. And part of that is the fact that we haven't invested enough in social care, making social care an attractive place to work. And so the first thing I would do is look at uh, terms and conditions 
uh, in the social care, adult social care industry to make sure that it is attractive and that we retain our workers. There are other things I would do in terms of empowering those in the front line, our doctors and our nurses. And thirdly, look at how we increase that homegrown talent when it comes to our doctors and nurses by looking again at the cap that we have on Scottish students going to universities, because we know that Scottish students are far more likely to stay in Scotland to work. So we should ensure that they have a place in medical school, school if they want. So there's my starter for 10, three different areas, the economy, poverty, public services, and some of the things I would do in the first 10 days, at least <laughs> on to the first 100 days. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned the NHS there, and anyone watching the, the television debates will have been possibly surprised by the level of criticism um, between you and your rivals, Hamza Yousaf and Ash Reagan. Hamza Yousaf, of course, deserving health secretary. You were quite pointed in your criticism of his record, and you've clearly identified that as something that needs to be changed. Uh, do you think that the, the criticism is going too far from someone who's already in serving government as yourself as finance secretary? Or is this a necessary bandage that needs to get ripped off? Well, obviously, I have great respect for Hamza Yusuf, and I hope that what you've seen across the contest is that respect and admiration and friendship. But this is an election contest. The issues facing the Scottish people right now are of profound significance. Those who are waiting to be seen in A&E for an emergency shouldn't need to wait. Those who are waiting for care shouldn't need to wait. So I think in an election contest, we would be doing a disservice to the people of Scotland and indeed SNP members if we didn't front up to the challenging issues that we are grappling with. And ultimately, the person who wins this contest will have to do far worse. They will have to face up to the Scottish people. They will face up to the UK government. They will face up to the opposition. So ultimately, I think SNP members should be able to see who has the competence, who has the grit and metal, and who ultimately can hold their own. So I have no intention of, and I, I hope, you know, over six years, people know that I don't have a mean bone in my body, but this is a contest and the, the leader will need to have a plan to deal with issues that are overwhelming a lot of ordinary people in Scotland. Well, Hamza Youssef, he appears to have the lion's share of elected politicians' support. Um, so far, there's a lot undecided. Given your... Uh, skewering of his record who, who serves in your in your cabinet when you're first minister as you as you hope who, who are you going to put in place there's a lot of talent in the SNP and ultimately this is an election contest that's determined of course by SNP members and I think it would raise democratic questions if elected representatives didn't respect the decision made by our party members as I said earlier we're ultimately here to represent the public, obviously, but we also represent our party. Our party make decisions, our party determines policy, and as elected representatives, we are also accountable to them. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to respect the outcome of the decision that party members have made. I certainly will, and that then flows to who would serve in government and I'd, of course, pick the people that I think had the best competence and best vision for delivery 
Well, many, many of our listeners are keen to hear more about the, the economic future, and you've pointed that as, as, as that was your first, the first thing you turned to in your, your plan for the first days. I have a background in the Northeast, and obviously um, the Press and Journal uh, patch is a, is a key part of the, our title. What do you say to oil and gas workers? Where's the current policy direction going wrong there? The first thing I'd say to oil and gas workers is, we need you. We need you today, and we will need you in the years to come. And I would never want to make any policy decisions that in any way undermined the just justice of the just transition. And so our oil and gas workers are critical when it comes to continuing to support Scotland's energy needs, supporting Scotland's economy, and ultimately to supporting Scotland's transition away from oil and gas. Now, the oil and gas industry themselves are perhaps of all industries making the most significant strides when it comes to investing in renewables, when it comes to moving to the low carbon economy. And so we need to transition away from oil and gas at a pace that doesn't undermine the investment that's required, the skills that are required, or the infrastructure that's built up over many years. So my approach would be to say, for the Scottish economy, we need to ensure that there is continued reinvestment in key industries, that we invest in skills, and that ultimately we want to see a country where there is a broad tax base raising the revenue to reinvest in our public services. And the oil and gas industry has, we can see from the figures, been one of the most significant contributors to public revenue, which underpins our public services. Mm -hmm. um, I mean... I'm asking questions which people beyond the SNP will want answered. And of course, we saw this last year with the Conservative leadership contest where much of the debate is, is very much wrapped up in SNP priorities because it's the members that, 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 are, that are deciding their new leader. They want independence as an absolute founding principle where there's a tension because obviously half, give or take, of the country uh, don't want that even on their radar. So how much of a priority should independence be and does it, how does it feed into everything else that you think about when you come to setting a chart for the future of Scotland? Well, I recognise that I'm not just speaking to SNP members, I'm speaking to the nation. And there's one thing you can't fault me on, and that is honesty and candour, even perhaps to the cost of my own career and leadership pitch. And so I think when it comes to the approach to independence, we also need some honesty and candour because we will only win independence when we persuade those who are not yet persuaded of independence. And those who are not yet persuaded, shouldn't need to be said, aren't in the SNP. The SNP is persuaded. The wider yes movement is persuaded. So there is a job of work to be done to inspire their confidence. But even more than that, we need a new leader who can reach out to no voters, who can listen to no voters, and who can persuade them of the merits of independence. And the fault line is really on the economy, making the economic case for independence. And I've tried to be honest in my discussions about independence and demonstrating that I strongly believe Scotland will be independent when a majority of people in Scotland want Scotland to be independent. I think we can persuade 
but it will take that gentle persuasion, that honesty and that strong case. It will also require competent government because good governance is important to meet the day-to-day -day needs of our people, but it's also political. Govern well and people will trust you and they're far more likely to trust you on independence if they can trust you on how you have governed competently. Okay, well, what, what happens when the UK government, perhaps Keir Starmer, just says no again? Well, the UK government are going to continue to want to erode devolution and to stall the approach to independence because they support the union. So that shouldn't come as a surprise. But I don't think any Democrat can stand in the way of a sustained majority support for independence. And many of us are frustrated, maybe disappointed, that the dial on support for independence hasn't shifted as substantially as we would have liked. We've come through Tory-inflicted Brexit. We've come through Tory-inflicted cost of living. We are uh, facing challenges when it comes to the powers of devolution and the UK government saying no. And yet the dial hasn't shifted as substantially as we would have liked. So therefore, the question for a new leader, a new first minister is, what else is it going to take? And I think what it'll take is a more intentional approach to listening to no voters, a more intentional approach to making the sound economic case for independence, and a more intentional approach to using the levers of devolution to ensure Scotland is prospering economically. That's my pitch. And certainly, if you look at some of the polling, I am more popular, certainly, than some of the, the, well, the unionist leaders in Scotland. And I can reach across the divide and persuade that 10 to 15% of no voters to vote yes. And just uh, when you're, you're thinking about the future then of the, of the direction of the, of the party and the country, have you, have you spoken to Nicola Sturgeon much since, or at all, or at all since putting yourself forward for this, this job? I've not spoken to her since I launched my campaign, no. No. So, so who is it that you turn to when you're, you're thinking about these things? Who's the person or the people that you turn to for advice when you're trying to work out these thorny problems? Well, the first, part, first group I turn to is my family because they are ordinary voters. They are ordinary people in Scotland and they keep me sane and they keep me grounded on what real ordinary people are talking about. And the next group I talk to are some of my political colleagues and friends in Parliament, many of whom have helped with this campaign. People who have been in the SNP for decades in some cases, who have been through the ups and the downs of uh, the SNP and who can take a, a long view of the situation right now. Family are always the best sounding board, but are, are you lucky enough that you, there's no fallouts over the dinner table? Um, surely they don't all agree with you on independence or the SNP? I grew up where disagreement was the bread and butter of our family discourse and debates about politics. Uh, and I think that's healthy. And indeed, it's something I would like to see more of in Scotland, the ability to disagree well. Have you convinced your whole family to vote for independence? I ha most of them are there, yes. I come from a family which has a long track record of being heavily involved with the SNP, starting branches, 
long before the SNP was, was mainstream. So I guess growing up, I didn't know there was any other party but the SNP. And uh, thankfully, all of my current closest family uh, are all voting for me. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Kate Forbes.